This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Isabella Eckerol, head of the Center for Emerging Viral Diseases at the University of Geneva. We'll be discussing what we now know about COVID-19 in children and teens. Welcome, Dr. Eckerol. Hi, welcome. At the beginning of this pandemic, it was thought that children weren't really a concern for getting and spreading COVID-19. That belief lingered even though new science is saying otherwise. I've seen masked parents with children who are not masked. Why was it initially believed that um, COVID-19 wasn't spread by children? So the first data that um, hinted into that direction were mainly um, household studies. So quite early in the beginning of the pandemic, um, there were some studies conducted that looked at index patients who brought the infection into households. And it was found that in many cases, the index cases were adults, but only very few households where actually the child was an index case. So this um, was leading to the uh, theory that children spread it less. And it was also seen that apparently the seroprevalence um, in children is lower. So there is also the thinking that um, children get it less. So basically, if there are less children who get it, then there are also less children who spread it. On the other hand, we have to keep in mind that most of these data were collected during some kind of lockdown with school closures in place or some precautions or maybe uh, parents being scared. So um, maybe they do not represent um, completely the, the, the real life scenario like we had it before the pandemic started or like we have it now when in many places the measures are, are being lifted. Oh, okay, just real quickly, would you explain to our listeners um, what an index patient is? Ah, yeah. So it means that you you take, for example, um, a hospitalized patient that um, is tested positive, and then this is your index patient. So this is the first patient that you investigate, so you know he he or she is positive for SARS-CoV-2, and then you go into the household of that person and you see if other people are sick as well. I see. Okay. Going back now, so if a child does have um, COVID-19, the, the, actually the infection, do they tend to be more asymptomatic than uh, adults? So at the moment, we cannot really um, say what percentage of children is asymptomatic because um, we just don't have the studies yet. Um, and most studies that were done, uh, especially in the beginning, were somehow focusing on symptomatic um, children or adults. And this is just the reason because these are the people that are seen in the health system. So if you want to set up a study um, where you look at asymptomatic um, infection, you have to look in the community. And these studies are ongoing at the moment, but they are not a lot of results. So basically what we can say is that usually children get less sick and many of them that we see in the health system that come for testing have um, something that is like a common cold or upper respiratory tract um, infection or a mild fever. So all symptoms that are first of all quite common in, in children and um, that are not necessarily a reason to go to the hospital. So I think it's a bit more now because people are scared. But um, we also have to keep in mind that um, there is a fine line between symptoms, between asymptomatic. Um, sometimes children can also not express some 
kind of discomfort. So we really don't know how many of them are actually asymptomatically um, infected. But what we can say is that children are most of the time they are just mildly sick. You did a study analyzing children with COVID-19. First of all, what percentage of children versus adults do you think have the disease now? So um, what we so when we uh, speak about disease and about symptomatic patients, I can give you some numbers from from our hospital what we saw. So in the study that that um, that we published in EID, um, we looked at um, pediatric patients. And that was up to the end of March. So during that time, we had around 3,000 confirmed cases in Geneva. And we had screened more than 600 children. And we had found only 23 of them that were positive. So um, within the children that came to the hospital, but even um, in the overall population of, of people that were sick with COVID-19, children are really just a very small percentage. Now, um, when we not speak about the disease, but about um, infected, as I said, it's very hard to say at the moment because asymptomatically infected people don't turn up in the hospital. So you have to go out in the community and do a random testing to really find these infections. And, and this we don't know at the moment. But we can definitely say that at least for the disease, um, children are much less um, represented in this pandemic than adults. Okay, so what was the age span of the children you looked at in the hospital? So we looked at um, all children that were tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 below the age of 16 years. And um, so we ended up with a, with a median age of 12 years, but with quite a huge range. So the smallest child was seven days old, and the oldest child that we included was 15.9 years. And when you began your study, what were you looking for? So we were interested um, in the specimens that we had received um, as part of our routine diagnostic care. And we were wondering if the children at the time when they got diagnosed would be able to spread the virus. Now, by the study that we did, we cannot directly comment on transmission, but um, we looked for infectious virus. So this can give us at least indirectly a hint if these children have infectious virus, and then this could also mean that they could spread this infectious virus. So what we did, we took the specimens that we received for our diagnostic um, testing. So we always have leftover that is stored in, uh, in, um, uh, at minus 80 degrees. And then we took part of the sample and inoculated it on cell lines to see if we can um, grow the virus. So that means that then in this sample there was infectious virus, and infectious virus is a prerequisite um, for transmission to another person. And maybe um, just as an explanation, so in the diagnostic test that we use, that is a PCR, we cannot say if the virus is still um, uh, infectious or if this is still replicating virus or if it is just dead RNA. So um, the test would turn out positive for both infectious virus and for dead RNA. But that also means that just the positive PCR cannot really inform us about the risk of transmission. And um, we also saw that culturing this virus is quite um, easy. So SARS-2 grows really well on cell lines, and um, we have a P3 facility in place that you need to do that. So it was quite um, easy for us to put these samples on cell lines and, and generate um, isolates from them. What did you find? So we found that we could culture um, SARS-CoV-2 from half of the specimen, so from 12 of 23 children um, from which we inoculated the samples on cell lines, we could actually isolate infectious virus. 
And um, we we saw this infectious virus by, uh, by, or we identified this infectious virus by a change of the cell line. So that is what we call a cytopathic effect. That is very typical when cells get infected. They start to change their morphology and they start to die. And then we also checked for an increase in viral RNA to really prove that the virus is replicating. And um, then we took all positive isolates and put it in a second passage to make sure that this is really a functioning virus that is able to infect cells again and again. And what we also saw, that the viral loads of those children where we could um, get an isolate, they were rather high. So they had uh, a, me um, a median viral load of 1.7, 10 to the 8 copies per ml. And what was also interesting, so we did not find um, any relation to age. So actually the youngest patient in which we could isolate SARS-CoV-2 was um, a seven-day-old um, uh, baby. And we also did not see any correlation. So most of the children were only mildly sick. They, they had an upper respiratory tract infection, but we could not correlate um, fever or cough or any other symptom to the fact if the isolation was successful or not. This science continues to evolve um, since this article is published in EID, as does the pandemic. Um, recently, more than 80 babies in the U.S. were diagnosed with COVID-19. How do you think the science showing that children are also COVID-19 spreaders should impact their interactions? Well, I think first of all, it's important to say that we did not directly assess the spread. So I think you really need epidemiological studies for that. But at least we could show that the biological prerequisite to spread the virus or to infect others is there by the data that we have. Um, I think the school closures were important in the beginning to get the epidemic under control, and that worked in many regions of the world. But on the other hand, we also saw that um, if you close schools, you are not doing a favor to children. So there were increased reports about abuse of children. We know that um, we cannot close schools forever. It's also a burden for their parents. And also that children need to benefit from education and from their peers. So I think the, the key is to keep schools open. But what we also saw now is that um, there are outbreaks in schools. Um, so there were some reports from Israel, from Australia. And this seems to happen when the community transmission goes up as well. So I think the key for school openings is not just to look at the schools, but to look at the whole community. So basically, you have to keep community transmission low in order to keep schools open. Then there are many precautions that you can take, but I think none of them will be a single solution. I mean, of course, as long as children are sick, they should not go to um, school. They should stay at home until they are well. If a child um, is tested positive, then contact investigations should be done. But um, this is only some, some part of the overall package that you have to deliver. Um, and, yeah, to keep community transmission low, I mean, it's a big task. It involves all of us, and um, it includes a lot of other measures, like um, keeping your distance, wearing a mask, making sure that everyone can get tested. And I think at the moment it's a bit of a psychological factor because everyone is tired, everyone is sick of it. And we would all love to go back to normal, but we are still in the midst of a pandemic and we have to find solutions to um, somehow go on with our life, but still um, to keep the transmission low. Should children wear masks as well as adults, given what we know now? So at the moment, it's hard to say. There's no good general consensus which measures should be taken. And there are 
um, many different um, varieties of how you open school from strict measures to almost no measures, uh, measures uh, across countries. But I think it would be important to put some measures in place, especially if you think of, uh, of the, I mean, the winter season coming where a lot of children will have other respiratory viruses. So it will get um, even harder to do symptomatic testing because a lot of the children will be sick with the common cold. And then you don't know if it will be SARS-2 or if it will be something else. So I think um, the big task is to put some measures in place to allow children to go to school safely, but also not to catch it and not to spread it to others. I mean, some recommendations were, for example, to reduce the class size, um, to put some uh, mask policy in place, maybe during the break, um, to encourage children to wash their hands. Um, we also see now that especially closed indoor spaces seem to pose a risk because there is more and more evidence for also aerosol transmission. So these are all factors that make schools not a very, well, easy place to manage, I would say. But then um, the good news is also that it seems to be um, a bit the older age groups, like um, above the age of 10, 12 years, that are more often positive and that seem to be maybe more of a spreader than the very young children. And I think for those children, it's easy to, well, easy, but it's feasible to educate them how to wear a mask. They have a better understanding of how to keep uh, some measures and but then the other thing is also uh, not just to keep these measures in school, but also um, to um, yeah to have the same measures when the kids are outside, when they have leisure time activities. And I guess this will be uh, a challenge. In the big picture, what are the public health implications of children possibly being as infectious as adults? I think the most important point is that we watch closely what what happens in schools now. Um, I think we should take all evidence that we have and we don't have a clear picture what happens with children, but we have to understand it. We cannot say children are just of a lesser risk, so we don't look at them at all. Um, one idea would be, for example, to do sentinel testing, to pay especially attention to sick teachers, to offer them testing in, in a maybe more facilitated way so they do not have to go to a testing center. So there are many different ways that you can do to, to tackle um, this problem. And um, it also means that you have to think of protection of elderly, of grandparents, of teachers with underlying health conditions. Maybe also children that have health conditions. And, um, yeah, I have to say it's, it's not easy. It would be much better if, if we would have proved that children do not play a role. But now um, I think there's more and more data emerging that there are outbreaks in schools. And um, so it means that we should include children in, in the testing algorithms and we should also contact uh, trace their contacts once we have an infected child and put people in quarantine and make sure we do not miss these clusters. So I, I think this is really the, the key message that we really have to pay attention to what is happening and have some strategies in place to anticipate what, what will happen in winter when there will be more spread of respiratory viruses. Since this study was published, have you investigated the issue further or have you seen more children in your hospital with um, COVID? So actually, in the meanwhile, we did see a few children presenting with this um, new multi-inflammatory syndrome that was um, recently described as a, as a late complication of um, SARS-CoV-2 infection. And um, in the last month, Switzerland has managed to keep the numbers rather low. 
However, since a few weeks um, with holiday season and some of the measures were relaxed, so we see um, a small rise in cases again. Um, we did another study um, where we just took the data that we generated through our diagnostic testing, and there we um, looked at um, viral loads um, across um, different ages, so we also included adults in the first five days of symptom onset. And actually here we found a confirmation of this study, so we did not find any differences in the viral load between children and adults, and we also saw that around half of the specimen that we receive for our diagnostic testing are in, um, in a range that is compatible with the presence of infectious virus shedding. So it's basically almost the same like the, the shedding study that we did. However, in this study that I just mentioned, we only looked at the viral loads, like we only looked at the number of RNA copies, but we did not um, uh, assess any infectious virus shedding in the lab. Will you be publishing this article in EID also? We had uploaded the study as a MET archive, uh, as a preprint to MET archive, and we had submitted it to uh, a journal already. But it's not, an, it's not published in the journal yet. It's only um, on MET archive. Tell us about your job and what you enjoy most about it. So I am in Geneva at the Center for Emerging Viral Diseases since two years, and um, this is a joint institution between the university hospital and the university. And I have to say that I'm very lucky in this position because I get to work with our diagnostic virology team and I work in close interaction with our infectious disease team, also with um, pediatric infectious diseases um, doctors. And um, we also do research. So I think it's, for me, it's, it's a fantastic combination. I'm a medical doctor from my background and then I spent the last 10 years in virology. So I really love to discuss interesting patients in the morning, then analyze their samples in our routine lab and later take that sample and um, analyze it in the research lab. So um, for me, this is really um, what I enjoy most to see that the, the work that we are doing, it has an impact on the patient, but we can also go beyond just the standard diagnostics and, and analyze samples further or isolate viruses and, and really look at the pathogens that make people sick. You live in such a beautiful country. What do you do for fun and relaxation? Yeah, so I'm also very lucky <laughs> to live in Switzerland. And, um, well, one of my really favorite hobbies is to go hiking. And um, it's nice because we have a lot of mountains around. And also in Geneva, we have the Lac Le Mans, so the Lake Geneva. So in summer, you can go swimming and go to the beach. And um, then you can also do really nice hikes and sit on the lake and eat ice cream. And so it's a very nice place, and I'm very happy to be there. Sounds wonderful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Eckerol. Yeah, no problem. And thanks for joining me out there. You can read the October 2020 article, Culture Competent SARS-CoV-2 in Nasopharynx of Symptomatic Neonates, Children, and Adolescents, online at cdc.gov EID. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO.